Good morning. So if you're visiting, come back. Because I'm just the substitute teacher this morning. The real guy shows up next Sunday. We're going to talk about Nehemiah today. I wear boxer underwear. Now, that's not important for you to remember, but it is important for me to remember. Because I walk in the park every morning, and um, this particular morning I got out of bed and laced on my shoes and was walking in the park and bent down to pick up a water bottle, empty water bottle, and discovered that I was in my underwear. (laughs) Thankfully, I was not in, like, whitey-tighty briefs or depends or something like that. But I was in my boxers in the middle of the park. So when Dwayne asks me to speak, he gives me lots of time to prepare. And so the first couple weeks, I just read the text and, you know, familiarize myself with that. And then I walk about in the park and... uh, try to discover what is the meaning of the text. What does, in this case, what does Nehemiah mean? What is it all about? So there I was. I was out there walking around thinking of Nehemiah. And this is the thought that came to me. Nehemiah is about restoration. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I was struck with this thought. If we attempt to restore our lives without first clearing out the rubble of our past life, then we do not have the mind of God. If we attempt to restore our lives without first clearing away the rubble of our past life, then we do not have the mind of God. And trying to restore our lives with the rubble of our captivity and making decisions in the wisdom of men is exactly like standing in the middle of the park in your underwear. So Nehemiah is not a prophet, as we understand a prophet. He was a man like you or I. He was probably born in the Babylonian captivity. And so, if there was no Babylonian captivity, there would probably not have been a Nehemiah. The Babylonian captivity has its roots in the fact that the people of God had left the wisdom of God to pursue their own ends. They had left God out of the decision-making processes, and they were functioning on their own in their own wisdom. They thought they were dressed in the righteousness of God, but they were actually standing in the underwear of their own wisdom. So I I taught history for almost 40 years. And the problem with being a history teacher or studying history is that you can't 
answer a question without connecting all the dots. You kind of have to bring in everything that has happened before that question is asked to make it all make sense. You can't help yourself. And my daughter you experienced this once. She had picked me up from a uh, medical procedure. And so we'd walked out to the car, and she was taking an ancient history course at the time. So we walked out to the car, and on the way out she said, Dad, what's the deal with these Byzantines? That's the only question she asked for the next 40 minutes. So fueled by some incredible drugs, I spent 40 minutes talking nonstop from 320 to 1453 about the Byzantine Empire, and then mercifully she put me to bed. And I used to teach like that. And finally, I had this group of scholars, these eight kids, and they were just incredibly gifted. And um, every time they would ask me a question, I didn't realize I was doing this, but every time they asked me a question, I would go back to Adam and Eve and come forward. And finally, one of them said, Reed, we can't stand it anymore. He said, sometimes when I raise my hand, all I want to do is go pee. I don't need the history of toilets for the last 3,000 years. And so we had questions. A number three question was, I could go back to Adam and Eve. A number two question, I had to answer the question within a century of when they were asking it. And a number three question was, I was limited to 100 words or less, and that was it. But for you this morning, the question of Nehemiah is a number one question. We must go back to Adam and Eve and work our way forward. If we look at the chronology of this, there we are. This is all B.C. The kingdom is... Israel was made out of the Egyptian bondage. Abraham happens way before that. And then we have uh, the Egyptian, the Exodus. And then in 1040, that's about 13th century, the Exodus. And then about 1043, Paul, or 1043, Saul becomes the king. Up until that point, we have had the judges. All these guys that we've been talking about were the judges. And now we have a king. So in 930, they go a couple hundred years, and then the northern, and the kingdom splits during that time period, and then the Assyrians attack the northern kingdom and wipe it out. And then uh, 100 and 200 years after that, then Israel is, or I'm sorry, yeah, southern kingdom, and then uh, 200, uh, 150 years go by, and Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians show up, and they destroy the southern kingdom. Jeremiah is the prophet at that point in time. So the Babylonian captivity begins then in 587. Okay, so then we get down to the next slide. The Babylonians are overthrown by the Medes and Persians, and then the Jews are allowed, Darius allows the Jews to become, uh, to, to come back to the Holy Land. I'm sorry, Xerxes. And this is when Esther was the queen, the Persian Wars, and things like that. But essentially, the Babylonian captivity ends in 516, precisely 70 years. Why 70 years, you ask? 
I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. That is a type three question. <laughs> we have to talk about the Babylonian captivity if we talk about Nehemiah. And in that, I want you to think in your minds about your own captivity, things that you are dragging behind you that need to be settled and thrown away, or rebuilding that has to happen in your life, restoration of things that you want to have restored as we go through this. So there are three scriptures that come into this, um, and we'll begin with the Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, after the seven days of creation, he established what? The, he rested on the Sabbath. He establishes the Sabbath, a day of rest. And then he refines this. When he's making the covenant with Israel, he refines it with these three scriptures. For six years you are to sow your fields and harvest your crops. But during the seventh year, leave the land. It is to remain unplowed and unused. When you enter the land I am giving you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath of the Lord. And at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. Every creditor shall cancel the debt he has made to his fellow Israelite. And there are a few other scriptures that, that deal with this. So we have the Sabbath. We're sitting here on the seventh day. We're in church. But God established a seven-year Sabbath. Every seventh year was to be a year of rest. It's called the Shemitah. And by the time that he had formed the nation of Israel out of the Egyptian bondage, somewhere in the 13th century, the Sabbath was not just every seven days. It was every seventh year. So if this was the seventh year, if we were entering the seventh year, and it doesn't begin in August, the new year, the Jewish calendar, next year, none of us would work. Yeah, Bree says, yeah, ooh, you have no income. If you have debts and people are paying you money, you need to cancel your debts. And if you have slaves or servants, if somebody comes to clean your house, they're not coming. And if you have workmen, they are free. They don't work for you anymore. Okay, now, now what? I have no income. Nothing's coming in. What do I do? In the Smita, the year of release, it ended imbalances. It leveled accounts. It nullified that which had been built up. It was an economic and personal cleansing. It was a release from the system of the world. Bree is not working. She has no money coming in. But she doesn't owe a house payment either. Trade-off, good trade-off. You have a car, but you, and you don't owe a payment on it but you still have no income. You must depend, and this is what God was doing. He was releasing the people from the sensible world of income and payments and bills and servants and, and reaping and sowing, and he was making them depend on him. 
for everything. They, they left the sensible world. They were to enter a spirit relationship with him in which he was to provide for a year. It was a reminder that God was the source of everything, spiritual and physical. And they were to live in his will and his wisdom and not their own. It was an act of submission, an act of faith, a year of worship. The Shemitah rest was a physical evidence that everything is dependent on God, including the land and everything that they had. So for the people to keep their covenant was an act of acknowledging God's power, not their own. God's wisdom, not their own. God's will, not their own. It was an act of faith. It was required total trust in God to supply their needs. To not sow or to free their servants and slaves to cancel debts was to trust in God's providence. The observance of the Shemitah lasted from the giving of the law, that's Moses, to Saul. When Saul becomes king, they stopped observing the seven years. And they chose their own will and their own providence instead of God. They chose a king. Samuel 8, 6. But when the pe then the people said, give us a king to lead us. This displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to everything the people say to you. It is not you that they are rejecting, it is me. The people turned away from the judges and the wisdom of God and turned to the wisdom of men. They chose a government of men and Saul as their king. And then in 1076, either by the direction of Saul or after Samuel had given over the spiritual direction to his sons, who the scriptures say turned aside after dishonest gain and bribes and perverted justice, the nation stopped observing the Shemitah and distanced themselves from God. They drove God out of their lives and replaced them with their own definition of right and wrong, morality and immorality. They began walking around in the underwear of their own wisdom. They were clothed in the pretend robes of religion. They decided that since the Shemitah only affected Jews, that they would manipulate their way out of this. So on the last day of the sixth year, they would lease their property to Gentiles. And they would free their slaves to Gentiles. And then on the first day of the eighth year, they would get them back. So they would live the seventh year on the income from their leasing of their property and the, and the rental of their slaves. And then they would take them back again. Man's wisdom, man's manipulations. The Sabbath rest, the Lord's release, became a manipulation based on greed and self-interest. And this brings us then to the Babylonian captivity. Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 36. 
He carried into exile the remnant who had escaped the sword into Babylon, and they became servants to Nebuchadnezzar and to his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. And the land of Israel enjoyed its Sabbath rest all the time of the desolation. The land and the people rested until there were 70 years were completed. They served one year in captivity for every seventh rest, every seventh year that they had not observed from Saul to that point in time. Is that incredible timing or what? The 70 years were precise. They had manipulated God's word. They'd made it their own way. They'd rejected him as their king. Collectively, perhaps, in their own wisdom, they may have written a constitution that promoted the rights of the individual over the good of the whole. Or they may have elected officials who served their own political parties rather than the people and were more interested in getting reelected than in doing good. Or they may have appointed judges that could be manipulated by special interest. Do you see the picture? Our nation stands at the threshold of this. And many of us stand in the same place. We are in captivity. We need a restoration. They were masters of their own destiny through their own wisdom. And this, this then is the, the defining of what, um, what the world was like in Israel at the time before the, the captivity happened. And this is in Jeremiah 32. They turned their backs to me and not their faces. Though I taught them again and again, they would not listen or respond to discipline. They set up their abominable idols in the house that bears my name and defiled it. They built high places of Baal in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to sacrifice their sons and their daughters to Moloch. Though I never commanded, nor I did it enter into my mind that they should do such a thing detestable thing, and so make Judah sin. By the sword, famine, and plague, it shall be handed over to the king of Babylon. So we come to us, people standing in the park in our underwear, trying to make sense of the world with our own wisdom. The allegiance to God is with our mouth. It is to the kingdom of heaven on Sunday. And our allegiance is to Moloch the other six days. Allen Ginsberg, in a part of a narrative poem called Howl, he describes the kingdom of Moloch uh, in more detail than Jeremiah. Moloch, what sphinx of cement and aluminum bashed open their skulls and ate up their brains and imagination. Loveless Moloch, the judger of men, the incomprehensible prison, the congress of sorrows. Moloch whose buildings are judgment, stunned governments whose mind is machinery, 
whose blood is running money, Moloch whose loves is endless oil and stone, whose soul is electricity and banks, Moloch whose poverty is the specter of genius, whose fate is a cloud of hydrogen, Moloch whose name is the mind. Now, the entire poem is an indictment of our dependence on ourselves and our own power and the lust for the things of the world. But a caution, if you want to read this whole poem, you need to understand that Alan's mother never washed out his mouth with soap. So it's, it's a tough poem. Nehemiah 2, 4, and 5. Nehemiah is born, probably, probably born in the Babylonian captivity in those 70 years. And he has elevated, this is the time where um, Esther is the queen, um, Daniel is there, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's that time period where those guys are in Babylon. And Nehemiah has risen to be the cupbearer of the king. And he is sorrowful. People are returning to Jerusalem, but they're living in shambles. There are no walls. There are no gates. It's just a rubble heap. And he is praying to God, and he hears God tell him to go rebuild the wall. So he goes in front of the king, and he has a sorrowful look. He doesn't know how to approach the king to ask. But the king looks at him and says, what do you want? You want something. What is it? And Nehemiah answers and says, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in your sight, let him send me to the city of Judah, so I might rebuild the wall and set up the gates. And so in the face of local opposition among a remnant of people that had brought their own destruction and perverted God's wisdom, served idols, sacrificed their children to Moloch, he rebuilds and restores the city. Together with Ezra, they reestablished the law. They consecrated the priesthood and restored the Jews to a life under the wisdom of God. The message of Nehemiah, then, is this message of restoration. And here is the scripture that God wrote in Jeremiah 31. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness, and will remember their sins no more. So God is a God of restoration. Robert Morris in his book, The God I Never Knew, tells this story. He was sitting on the platform waiting for the service to start. And a woman walked in and sat down um, in one of the rows. And he watched her sit down. It was a, she was a visitor. And um, the Holy Spirit spoke to Robert sitting on the platform and said, do you know this woman's story? Do you know her past? And uh, Robert Morris said, no, I don't. And the Holy Spirit said, 
I don't either. I don't either. God forgives and forgets. We're not talking about the forgiveness that is a duty. We're talking about something that happens in your heart. And we need to forgive and we need to forget just like God does with us. If we were to ask God if he remembered all the bonehead things that we did in our lives or all the offenses that we committed or all the times that we turned our back on him or all the times we stood in our own wisdom and made decisions, he would say, I don't remember that. Restoration begins with forgiveness and forgetting. We can't just start rebuilding where we are. We need to clear the slate and quit dragging this bag behind us with all this crap in it and all the stuff that we have done or not done. God wants us to leave that bag behind. And some of that happens with us forgiving other people too and forgetting that it ever happened. Um, I used to be a, uh, when I was teaching, I was also an athletic director for 12 years in a Christian school, and I worked for my brother-in-law. That's probably how I got the job. But, uh, you know, so I was his athletic director in teaching and stuff, and um, we had an honor code. And I, I, Vicki and I have two kids. Uh, Heather, our daughter, is, you know, all you had to do was look at her, and she would start confessing everything that she had done for the last month. And then our son was, he liked to fly close to the envelope. He was, he was the daredevil guy. And uh, he was always testing the water. And um, so he was at a party, and uh, they brought in some alcohol. Now this violated the honor code of the school. And so they were drinking. They were all at this party drinking. And um, they got reported. And so there would be consequences. So we sat down as a family and we said, there will be consequences. And he said, yeah, I know. I, I, I'm ready for that. I realize, I understand. And um, so we were, we were fine with this until we discovered that there would not be any consequences for anyone else at the party, including the pastor's son who had attended and partaken of the wicked drink. <laughs> and uh, so all those guys, all the rest of the kids, nothing, there would be no consequences. Well, now the worm turned, and we were not okay with this. John was caught in the middle. This was not his decision. This was up higher up. He was just the messenger. But um, it severed the relationship in our family. So can, if you can imagine Christmas dinner with 10 people sitting there around the table, no one speaking, <laughs> it was terrible. You know, this big elephant is in the room and nobody's talking about it. And, uh, you know, then you just eat for a while and it's totally quiet and then somebody would say something like, how about them cubs 
or, you know, something stupid to break the silence. But there was no relationship between us. Um, I left the school, and a couple months after I had left the school, I got a letter from John, and he had really done his research because he included in this letter every scripture on forgiveness. And so I read all of that, page after page, and I drafted a reply, several replies. Some replies were nicer than others, but I settled on this one. There is no forgiveness without repentance. And I mailed it off. And I stayed in that spot. And every time my son and I would get together, we would wallow around in that. Um, we would talk about it. We would talk about punishment and justice and forgiveness and repentance and man's wisdom and religiosity. And one morning, I was walking about, I was fully dressed, and God's Spirit spoke to my spirit. And he said, there is no forgiveness without forgetting. I couldn't hold on to that. I was in captivity. I had put myself in prison, holding on to that. It wasn't that I just had to walk up to him and say, I forgive you. I had to forget that he had even done it. I had to wash it away as if it had never happened. And that restored us. That broke the bonds of my captivity. With those words, instantly we were restored. I didn't find my answer in quoting scripture or in arguing the justice of the law. I didn't find it in man's wisdom. I found it in the voice of God. And in doing so, I found that key of restoration. Forgive, forget. We have to, as Paul says, put on the mind of God. And the mind of God in his wisdom, the words forgive and forget are irrevocably linked. If I am able to forgive and forget, if I believe that I am forgiven and God does not remember my past, then my compassion and forgiveness looks like God's mercy and God's forgiveness. And my love for others becomes his love for me. And then comes the restoration, the rebuilding. But I cannot rebuild with the same blocks that brought about my, re my destruction. I needed to rebuild with the stones the is we need to rebuild with the stones the Israelites abandoned when they abandoned the Shemitah. And these stones are worship, faith, and submission to the will of God. Returning to the worship of God and rebuilding our walls with the stones of faith and dependence puts us in a place where we can hear God's voice, where we can become part of his purpose, 
where we can bring purpose and healing to other people's lives. If I rebuild and restore my life with the stones of living faith and living worship, with the stones of dependence on God's wisdom and not my own, then I can build a wall against the world. But if I try to rebuild and restore my life with the rubble that brought about my captivity in the first place, then all I'm doing is building a prison for myself. When Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem, there wasn't hardly a stone on a stone. It was all rubble. They had to clear it out and choose whole stones to rebuild with. One of those stones is faith. Faith is not religion. It is not a passive acceptance of conventional opinions. It is not blind conformity to doctrinal statements or political slogans. Faith is what brings us in contact with God and into direct contact with other people. So a few weeks ago, Duane talked about Elijah and the principle that there is only one God. But that is just the beginning. That's the beginning of faith. If we stop there at that doctrinal statement, then our faith becomes a noun and not a verb. If our faith is only believing that we're on the winning side, and we file in dutifully every Sunday to perform this ritual of faith, then we are not making footprints in the sands of time. We are making butt prints in the sands of time. And who wants to make a butt print in the sand of time? I mean, do you want someone to say, hey, you've got large butt prints to fill, or I want to walk in his butt prints. No, you want to hear them say, I want to walk in his footprints. Henry Nguyen is a Catholic priest, and he said this about life. I still believe that my life is part of a much larger event that stretches far out beyond the boundaries of birth and death. I think of it as a mission in time, and the one who sent me on the mission is waiting for me to come home and tell him the story of what I have learned. So here is the scene. We die. We go to heaven. And God says, tell me your story. Well, I prayed the prayer of faith on uh, December 12th. No, it was December 25th, which is actually your birthday. December 25th, 1984. That's good. And then I was baptized um, uh, on uh, January 14th, uh, the following year. That's great. Well, every time the, you know, when I went to church every Sunday, and, and every time that the, the bag passed by me, I put something in it. Sometimes it was only my Connect card, but sometimes I really put actual cash in there. Bully. 
Well, I, I pick up uh, plastic water bottles in the park. <laughs> and um, I, uh, I help Steve Reed uh, muck out the bottom of his pond. Now, at this point in time, I hope God doesn't say, who's Steve Reed? <laughs> but you get the picture. If that's all we've got, then we're, we're just taking up space. We have to have an active faith. We have to, earth is not a proving ground on trials that we get so, through so we can build a bigger mansion in heaven. Our friends, our students, our families, our colleagues, strangers, all the people that we meet are hoping that life is more than just surviving. Creeds and slogans and doctrines cannot answer the question of living life. Only people of faith, walking among the ruins of Moloch, the ruins of this world, can bring restoration. The government can't do it. Doctrines and laws cannot do it. It has to be people who are walking alive among the lives of other people that can bring restoration. Worship. In the kingdom of the world, we worship ourselves. And when we worship the false God we have created in our own image, we create our own answers based on our own wisdom. We stand in the park in our, in our underwear and proclaim the truth. We take the place of God and become the judges of men. And the more we lean on our own wisdom and our own truth and our own understanding, the less we love and the more we judge. Wisdom is where Nehemiah started. It was with a dream. It was with the voice of God. And it is what Robert Morris heard on the platform while he watched the woman come in and take her seat. The wisdom of God is not an abstraction. It is a voice we can hear, like Robert Morris and like Nehemiah. The key is putting ourselves into places where we can hear that voice, and that is worship. The final building block is submission. Our holiness is proportionate to our capacity to give ourselves to the wisdom of God. Our holiness is in proportion to our ability to give ourselves to the wisdom of God. Unless we learn submission to his will, we really don't know how to love. Our submission is, must be to become Christ and to love as he would. It can be as great as Nehemiah building a wall, or it could be as small as what happened to me in the park the day after the murders in South Carolina. So I was walking along, and um, there was a black man coming up behind me, walking also. And um, so we, we leveled our pace for a while, and we talked park talk together, which I hate because I'd like to just walk alone. And I had this guy that I had to talk to. I just, it just bothers me. But um, so we were in the park, and we were park talking. 
And finally, we walked a while, and, and he offered his water bottle. He said, would you like a drink of water? And I said, no, I'm not thirsty. And then the thought came to me of what to say next. And it was, but I would drink out of your bottle. In the light of what had happened in South Carolina, that was the gesture that needed to be made at that particular time and place. He offered me the water, and I offered him my brotherhood. And that was only a gesture, but we stopped, two strangers, and hugged. So it's not the great things that we do. It's not the great callings. I mean, some of that has to happen. You know, sometimes we're called to do that. But mostly walking in faith and walking in the love of God and walking in a place where we're trying to restore God into the world, it happens in small moments. It happens in the classroom. It happens at work. It happens at home with your spouse, with your children. Those small things, those small acts of kindness is what walking with God is all about. It's not Sunday morning. It's Monday through Saturday. As we walk through the world and become the restoration for other people's lives. God stands ready to deliver us from our captivity. He stands ready to restore us. Nothing we have done can hold us back. Absolutely nothing. No decision, no terrible deed, no manipulation, no sin is beyond forgiving and forgetting. And then we need to understand that if we are to be restored, we cannot rebuild our lives with the rubble that has brought us to this place in the first place. Forgiving, forgetting, restoration. Man's wisdom generates Moloch. It brings captivity. It will get us from point A to point B, but God's wisdom will get us to the kingdom of heaven. Man's wisdom is a closed prison wall. God's wisdom is an open road. And he said through Jeremiah, and this is the covenant I will make with you. I will put my law into your mind. I will write it on your heart. I will be your God and you will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or brother or man or his brother saying, know the Lord, for you will all know me from the least to the greatest. Forgiveness, forgetting, faith, worship, submission, restoration. And then the journey is endless. If we stand in the underwear of our own wisdom, we could get arrested. But if we stand clothed in the wisdom of God, then we can become restoration 
for other people's lives and for ourselves. Father, thank you for this time we've had together. Thank you for this moment for us to look at ourselves. Some of us are dragging long bags behind us. And we're tired of it. We're tired of Babylon. We want to go home. Father, help us to say those words, to look deeply at ourselves, to call out to you to restore our lives and open the road in front of us. Father, we are thankful for you, for your forgiveness, for your forgetting, for your restoration. Amen.